Welcome to Secret Sauce for Success, show number 13. Hi, everybody. You have tuned in to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we strive to find secret ingredients that lead to success. We interview successful guests every week and learn their secret to their success. We sincerely hope you implement these habits into your life and become the best you that you can be. Enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? It's Rick Stahl, host of the Secret Sauce for Success show. Live from Colorado, here with my co-host, Doug Kierstein. What's going on, Doug? Oh, Rick, busy week, busy time. Spring break is coming up, and uh, got a trip planned. We're down to Texas, take the family down there for spring break. Very nice. It should be fun. Looking forward to it. Where at in Texas? Uh, Houston, Austin, and Galveston. So we're going to fly down, stay on Galveston for a while, go to Houston, visit the visit, um, Johnson Space Center. I think it's Johnson, isn't it? In Houston, yep. Yeah, in Houston. And then uh, spent a little time down there in Galveston on the beach and eating, you know, food and having a good time and just taking it easy, getting away from life for a little while. Very good. Yeah, we just bought tickets to go to Florida uh, for in like a month. They had a long weekend and we're heading to, heading south. What part of Florida? Oh, Orlando. Go to Disney World. Yeah, that's fun. We did that uh, a couple of years ago, I guess it was. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. We had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go have fun. You know, I know we talk a lot about investing and work and, and, but you also got to make memories with your family. Sure you do. Yeah. And you know, your, your kids like mine, they're going to stay young forever. So we don't have to worry about that kind of thing. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I let my daughter drive uh, in a parking lot the other day, you know, so I'm right behind you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you, man, kids driving. You know, I bought a new car recently. I think my son has driven it more than me because uh, he wants to drive everywhere we go, which is fine. He needs that practice, and it's good that he does it while I'm in the car, but it hasn't been the best for my blood pressure. So <laughs> he's a good driver. I'll give him a hard time, but he's a good driver. But yeah, there have been a few moments. Very good. And, and Doug, I want to tell you about some books I've been reading. I'm taking our podcast to heart. I'm trying to good. read more. You know what? Uh, readers are leaders. So I uh, went to the library and I found some books. I picked up uh, what Gary V's Crushing It. And I read through uh-huh. that. And Brooks O'Hearn's, uh, that was his recommendation. And he that whole book was just about social media, uh, just leveraging the heck out of it and uh, do it, using every site to the max. So I thought that was a good book. I thought we're kind of doing it with the podcast already and our Instagram account. So I thought we're already kind of started there. Yeah, I thought it was good, but kind of the only thing that surprised me was it seems like a lot of people are working so hard at making some business work online digitally than if they would just go to school and learn a classical trade and learn a skill. So they're working harder to get out of work. It never made sense to me. Yeah, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat, like they say, right? And so there's just different things that people see things differently and want to do things differently. So, yeah, I can see why uh, that may not be appealing to you. But uh, if somebody, is, their desire is to be online and running the business online, I guess that's you know, where they want to be. Uh, yeah, and then I also started reading the book Traction. That's yeah. Can't remember. I think at Bigger Pockets they always talk about it, and it was at the library. That's a good book, I have to say. It's a little more meatier, so I have to sit down and I've had I created my uh, core beliefs, my core values, the business plan kind of thing, where I want to be in five years, and I did it for my personal life as well. And so anyhow, it's just kind of trying to think about it from the big picture kind of thing. And so I still have a long way to go in the book yet, but uh, so far so good. That's a really good book. Just learning all this, these smart people write books and, and pass this knowledge on, you know, just like our guest for the day, man, Jim Flint. What a, what a great guy. You know, it's, it's interesting. And you bring him up as we're talking about books. Did you uh, pick up on his comment about the rich dad, poor dad? Did you hear that? He, he's about the only person that I've heard, say that that was not like a pivotal kind of book for him. You know, most people read that and they're like, ah, that really makes a lot of sense. I guess coming from that background, it was it was something that wasn't this uh, impactful. 
So maybe he already had the mindset with his dad running through the rentals and painting his way through college. Right, right, exactly. Well, that was, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, as a, he's a successful guy. He's got a lot going on and uh, doesn't love to read, doesn't attribute much to, to books and study and that sort of thing. I mean, maybe early on in his career, but I think the experience that he has is, has uh, taken over for, for those books and kind of overshadowed that. I really just love his straightforward, uh, analytical way to look at real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a, a pragmatic way of doing things. I think it's just a very solid approach because you have to know what that property is going to do, or at least have a really good feel for it uh, and an understanding of what's going on. And even if you're incorrect about your assumptions or your, your predictions, you have to base your decision on solid information. So uh, can't always be correct in, in our predictions, but we have a whole lot better chance if our information is good. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to take a classroom. I'm going to look up that commercial class that he teaches. Yeah, I bet it's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. Doug, do you have a quote of the week for us? I do. I think this is kind of interesting. I uh, was reading through some quotes here. Ben Graham said this. said, the individual investor should act consistently as an investor and not as a speculator. And I think that is interesting when it comes to us talking about the different types of real estate do you want to flip? Do you want to invest? How long-term buy and hold? That sort of thing. Flipper is an, a speculator, and the investor is a, the buy and hold. So you should basically uh, pick a lane, right? So act consistently. Yeah, one of the books I think the traction was in writing this business plan and your goals. It says, you know, eventually it says, stay in your lane. Don't get distracted by other shiny objects. What are you focused on? What is your core focus? And stay stay focused on your goal. And Jim sure lives that mindset here. Well, let's get to the interview. Everybody's probably dying to hear it after we've been talking him up. So let's uh, let's get him on the forefront here. All right. Today on Secret Sauce for Success, we have a special guest, Jim Flint. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here, Rick and Doug. Yeah, we're glad to have you, Jim. We appreciate you being on the show. We know you're a busy guy, so thanks for taking the time to be with us tonight. You bet. So, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're at now? Sure. I have my own real estate company. I actually have had my own real estate company since the early 80s. And over the years, of course, we've changed the specialization that we focused on. But right now, I have 10 agents, and those 10 agents specialize in different areas of uh, investment real estate. Some do residential, some do uh, apartments, some do industrial. We have others that do uh, some commercial and land, industrial land, things like that. So we try to meet the needs of whatever client that we have that somebody is experienced at that. And then we also do partnerships. So if people don't have enough money to buy a property on their own and they don't want to have hassle, um, we actually have, uh, I think it's uh, 10 different partnerships each of those partnerships have goals. Some of them are similar, but they all have goals to either grow your money or provide immediate income. We work hard at that. I have uh, 350 partners. They've contributed about 22 million and we have about 48 million in properties. Wow, Doug, why didn't we get him on sooner? Yeah, we only have 42 millions. And in uh, three weeks, we'll add another $8.3 million property. Wow. All right. Can you take us back to the beginning and tell us a little bit about how you got started? My dad built a few homes in Denver and uh, we had rental properties growing up. So I joke about I painted my way through DU. That didn't mean I painted DU, but I painted a, a house or two in the summer and my dad would pay about half my tuition to DU, which even though that was a long time ago, it was still a lot of money in those in those days. So once I became, you know, old enough, uh, I don't know, probably 15 or so, I got more involved with my dad going to the rentals on the weekends and cleaning them up or fixing them up or something. I kind of thought it was pretty normal to have a rental property. At some point, I figured out, gee, let's see, you buy the house, somebody else pays it off, and then you own the house free and clear. 
I'm like, wow, that sounds like a good deal. <laughs> so were you ever turned off at, uh, by the amount of work you had to do? Or no, you saw no, all the benefits? No, not really. I, I saw the the golden pot at the end of the rainbow, and I figured it was worth the climb to get there. So Very good. So you got your appetite whetted. Yeah, and then I went to, uh, so I picked out a school that uh, had a major in, in real estate and it was uh, really pretty limited choices, but uh, DU had a course. I really enjoyed that. I had three great professors. Two of them had a lot of experience in Denver real estate investing, and one had never had a real job. He was a PhD and would say the silliest thing sometimes, but, you know, we still learned a lot of, of ideas from him. And then I thought, well, I might as well get my real estate license. That sounds like something I'd do if I was going to get in this business. But, of course, I didn't go to college to to be a, a salesman. That would have been a waste of time. So I got my license while I was going to DU, and I sold one house the first year. It was $13,500, and I think I got a $300 commission after split with the company. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm stubborn, and I'm like, Oh, I can't quit now. This is, I would say I was a failure. And after all, all I'm doing is selling real estate and I'm a college graduate. So I have to do better than that. So uh, anyway, so I stuck with it. After I graduated, I continued working in it, but I saw that I wanted to be more on the investment side. So I tried to work more on uh, getting duplexes and triplexes uh, listed, and then I'd attract some buyers and then sell them a rental house or whatever. And then we started doing partnerships. At that time, the mobile home parks around the country were a really good buy. And I met another agent at the company I was working with, and he had a knack for the management. So we teamed up and I would negotiate the deal, uh, work with the bank, work with the securities attorney. And then once we bought it, he would run it and hire the managers and do the necessary repairs, and we uh, increase the income, and then would sell it and buy another one. Wow! So the partnership. How, can you explain to me how that works? Sure. You know, there's various forms of partnerships. You know, there's a general partnership, and then the partnerships that are obviously the LLC. And you and I can form an LLC if we wanted to. But if you're going to go out to the public and ask for money with the intent of trying to make money for them, that falls under a security. If it's a security, then you have to meet certain guidelines that the SEC requires. So you need to get a competent SEC attorney to create the offering memorandum, the partnership agreement, and the uh, operating agreement, and the subscription agreement. Once you get those 50-page documents done, you can now go to people that you have a prior relationship with. You can't advertise it in the newspaper or on the Internet or anything like that. You can only offer it to people that you have some prior relationship with, see if they want to invest with you. And there's two categories, the uh, sophisticated investor and then the unsophisticated. There's certain net worth requirements for those two categories. So you have to be careful who you're offering it to. If you want to offer it to the lower income people, uh, meaning people that have less than $300,000 of combined income, then there are certain things you can do and certain documents you have to have. And if it's over uh, 300000 and they're considered an accredited investor, you don't have to give them quite as much information because supposedly they're smart and they can figure this out on their own. Wow, very good. You got into some partnerships and fixing and flipping, essentially, right? Yeah. Over the years, we did about 13 partnerships of mobile home park and also uh, self-storage facilities. And they were in Colorado, Wyoming, uh, New Mexico, Florida, and Alabama. We wanted to be diversified because we kind of saw the market going crazy here in the 80s, and we wanted to be diversified into other markets. So when the crash happened here in the 80s with the oil companies leaving town, we were too affected. We were certainly affected to some degree, but a lot of my partners lost money on deals, but they didn't lose money on my deals. And because uh, we were in other uh, states that weren't as affected as, as we were here in Denver. So, and then after that, a few years went by and we just kept doing uh, brokerage of self-storage facilities. And then I was asked to teach a class on investing in real estate. And I've always felt that people that I come across that 
are unhappy with their real estate investment were not well informed when they bought the property. And the agent usually doesn't know much more than the people. And everybody gets false ideas about what this is going to be like. And then things go downhill from there. So I always tried to educate my my clients and would go over an income expense sheet so their expectation was accurate. And I showed them how to do some figuring on their own. So because this is their deal, not mine. I, you know, it doesn't matter if I can do the math. So when this chance came up to teach these classes at uh, community colleges as an adult education, a one night class, I thought, well, this will be really good. So I made up a book and I started with the Aurora Community Center. They told other places about me and pretty soon I was at six locations. On Tuesday nights, we do a class for first time investors or people that maybe don't realize that they don't know what they're doing (laughs) and would like to uh, uh, get a little more information. And on Thursday nights, we do a property management class to teach you how to manage your property in a professional manner. And then the following Tuesday at some locations, I do a class on commercial real estate. Uh, You know, it's like, what, what do you do after a duplex? You know, do you just keep buying houses or what about commercial? And then we talk about the difference in uh, financing and tax laws. So they have realistic expectations of what that commercial property might be like. So that's the class I need next. (laughs) Um, So are you teaching these classes right now? Well, for the pandemic uh, killed off the classes because they're in-person classes. And so we didn't have any. Uh, we are offering them through those same locations. We do uh, one in Longmont, the Longmont Rec Center, Wheat Ridge Rec Center, CFU, Colorado Free University, the two locations of uh, Rappo Community College, the one in Littleton, the one in Parker. We are offering those. And if we have enough people, we show up and have a class. So when you say we, is it you or your team no, that does? Yeah, the school. Yeah, the school usually has a minimum of three or four people. If they get three or four people, then I show up and do the class. Wow. They charge. Yeah, they charge for that. I get like five dollars a person or something. So, <laughs> uh, but my real money maker is I sell my book, and that's twenty dollars for the book, and so that helps pay for my cruises to Southeast Asia and uh, and Europe. So. So what's the name of the book? Uh, well, the. First one is uh, first time investing in real estate and the other is property management. And, you know, it's just a pamphlet. It's 80 pages, you know, that goes along with the class. Very it's good. all the slides that are in the class. Very good. Doug, I've been hogging the interview here. Do you have any questions for him? No, that's okay. It's, it's very interesting. I always find myself learning so much that I forget that I'm supposed to be asking questions. <laughs> it's not a, not a bad position to be in. I'm curious, Jim, what are your thoughts right now? You said you're not doing so much in the way of flips and that uh, is that just because the Denver area is so tight or is that just because there's more risk and that kind of thing involved in there and that's kind of beyond or outside of where your real house is now? And the flips we did was we just funded them. And if we had a good flipper, we would go up to 100% of the acquisition cost and they paid for the repairs and then paid us the principal and interest when they sell the property. Right now, the guys I have been working with can't seem to find the right property. So, you know, we have money available, but we don't have anybody interested. That's why we aren't funding them. But we never got involved with buying the house and hiring the crews and actually doing work. We'd rather sit in the office and make money. <laughs> Typical realtor, right? <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Sitting in an office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's interesting. You're still doing hard money deals if you've got people who are willing and can find a property. Do you facilitate that whole uh, experience for them or what's your role? We, you know, we check out their track record and then check out the house, make sure we think it's a pretty good buy. And then they come up with a budget. So basically we're just like the bank and we just analyze the deal. And if we think it's a good deal, then we'll, we'll fund the deal. In the beginning though, we usually only do about 80 or 90%. And then, um, and we roll in the first three months uh, interest payments, so they don't have any interest payments for three months, and then the payments start after that. Interesting. What are your interest rates for those? Um, it varies a little bit, somewhere between 12 to 14% and two points. 
do you have a realtor that, that helps people find those deals and, and helps them to realize that? Or is that really on the, uh, on the, um, we, yeah, with some of our agents help them, but we also work with other realtors and really a separate department. And that department's trying to make money for those partners. So, uh, we work with other realtors uh, if they send us a deal and they got a client. So that's fine. I might mention that I also have a mortgage company and I've had that for 20 some years. Really, it was started out of frustration that I couldn't get a straight answer out of a loan officer on understanding the difference in interest rates between owner-occupied and non-owner-occupied. And so I got so frustrated, I looked into starting my own company. And 20 years ago, that was probably 25 years ago now, I come to think of it, it, the regulations weren't too bad. There wasn't any licensing. And so I started a mortgage company that time the interest rates were kind of coming down. So it was pretty easy to get leads. So we did a lot of refinances. I actually ended up hiring, I met a guy that had an insurance agency in the Midwest and we trained his agents to do loan applications and send them to us. So I went from a two man office to about an 80 man office in about six months. And then we were pretty overwhelmed. And so then we had to you know, get more people on board and to do the uh, processing and stuff. And then, and then I decided I didn't want to be full-time in the mortgage business anyway. So I got back in the real estate business. So, <laughs> but I still have that, uh, my mortgage company and I have one loan officer. She's been with me 15 years, which I think is a good sign when people stick around with you for a long time. And she's uh, very good, very patient and very knowledgeable about um, all kinds of Fannie Mae loans. So from one to four units, we can help people um, with their personal residence or the non-owner occupied property. So, Jim, can you talk about this new law coming down where the government, I'm not sure if it's Fetty or Franny, is limiting the investing type loans to 7%? Yeah, 7% of their portfolio. Yeah. Right. Can you explain that a little bit more? You know, I just uh, heard about that myself. And next Tuesday, you know, for our sales meetings, we have different guests come on. Uh, I have a friend at Marcus and Millichap that does some good commercial webinars for us. But I have a wholesaler that is going to give us a little talk on that. And um, you might want to have him come on at some time, you know, and talk sure. about that. You know, as I understand it, then they have to limit uh, their portfolio to 7% to non-owner-occupied. I don't know what an average portfolio is now. And I asked him, I said, well, is this going to put a crimp on, you know, the loans and stuff or, or what are they doing? And he says, well, I think they're just being cautious about it to make sure that, you know, since the market, real estate market has been so good that we don't get too many of those. But I said, well, you know, I'm not sure we can have too many rentals. And if we had more rentals and there'd be more competition, maybe the rents would come down. It doesn't seem like limiting it. It's a good thing to do right now. So I don't know if there's something else going on or not. So, so you don't know or have an estimate of how much it's going to impact the, the interest rates? Well, but ask me uh, Tuesday afternoon and I'll know that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching Nicole Ruth. Uh, she was a previous guest we had and she was mentioning uh, all this and she was guessing that it might impact rates by a half a percent more for investors. Yeah, I think so, because they've got less money to loan, so they'll want more money for it. You know? Right. So, and I just don't think it's a good economic policy right now, but I you know. Yeah, I didn't know if it was just because the housing market has been so hot, and that kind of kept everything, the economy afloat during the pandemic, and now yeah. maybe that the the rest of the market is recovering, and they don't need the market as hot, and so they're trying to slow it down. You could come up with a lot of theories on this and, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know, but pumping $3 trillion into the economy doesn't sound like they're trying to keep anything, <laughs> a lid on it. So right. the two don't seem to match up too good with any kind of theory that I understand. But after all, like I say, I'm just a realtor. So what would I know? <laughs> <laughs> that runs a mortgage company that does everything you're doing here. You're, you're very humble. Oh, well. I don't know that I could put too fine a point on what you know, but I would say probably more than most of the politicians running our country. <laughs> yeah. a reasonable answer to that question. Yeah, well, I'm sure the three of us combined know way more than any of <laughs> any three. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes I think they just pull solutions out of a hat, and it doesn't matter oh, what they yeah. are. It's just it's, yeah, it's, it's so bad. Yeah, it's so bad. So yeah, yeah. 
Hey, Jim, can you talk more about self-storage? That's an area I would love to get into. Our first self-storage facility was the Parker Mini Storage on Parker Road. And I drive by that once in a while, and I still see it today. And I think we bought it for um, $500,000 with $50,000 down. And I had 10 partners with $5,000 each. (laughs) And it wasn't doing too well. But that was mainly just the general market conditions, not so much bad management, but we managed to fill it up and we sold it for 600 or 750, maybe something like that. And then we carried the loan back. And then the, it must have been the, the late eighties, you know, the crunch went on and people took stuff out of their storage and the guy couldn't make the payment. So we got it back. Oh boy. We had a lower debt service and then we, filled it back up and then sold it again. Wow. So, so that was okay. Too bad for him. Sorry about that. But, you know, sometimes it works out that way. So, but yeah, the self storage is, you know, people think like they're a cash cow or something. They're like anything else. It, it costs a lot to build those. The cities hate them because they don't generate much revenue because the improvements are not very valuable, you know, and usually you want to have a pretty big lot to have RV storage on. The cities hate that because it takes up a lot of land and they have no improvements, so there's no tax base there. And then, you know, they're worried about drainage and things like that. So to build one is very complicated and it's expensive. We usually buy an existing one for less than the cost of replacement and it's, you know, 60, 70% full. So I can't see building one. I've tried, I've looked into it a couple of times and I just couldn't make it make sense. So you know, I, I like to do things as simple as possible. You know, if I can buy one that's 70% full and replace the manager and get somebody that's more friendly, I'll do that and um, fill it up and go from there. We bought one down in Mobile, Alabama that was about 60% full. It barely broke even when we bought it. We assumed the loan from the builder. I think in two years, we started a, a comfortable break even. But then after six years, in it, we refinanced it and I returned everybody's original investment. And because interest rates were lower, our payment didn't change much. It was 5.4 million. We put 2.4 million down. When we refinanced it, I passed back 2.6 million and the cash flow didn't change much. So people are pretty happy with that one. Wow. That's really good. So you're doing out of state stuff. How did you start looking out of state? Well, I I think it's important to be diversified and, you know, Denver's nice and all that. I'm a native, uh, but um, I don't want to have everything on one economy. And so when we bought our first property in Mobile, the one I just talked about was the uh, second one that we bought. We were selling a mobile home park in Laramie, and we wanted to diversify into another economy. I looked all over the country. My partner drove all over the place looking at places. And then we found uh, this place down in Mobile. Airbus had been awarded the contract to uh, build new Air Force tankers. They had started a three-story office building on the airport, and this first property we bought was within a half a mile of the airport. So we thought, well, there'd be some more jobs, and and people probably want to live near the airport and probably help the mini-storage, but it was run extremely poorly. Uh, The owner had like five relatives there being shifted for managers and I mean, they had seven cell phones on their bill and, you know, I mean, it was, it was just an unbelievable mess, but so it took us about a year to straighten it out and then we did. And then, you know, it does fine now, but anyway, so we thought, well, this sounds good. You know, it's a different economy. Uh, Mobile's the, the base for the Coast Guard. Uh, like all of its strengths were different than Denver. And so we bought there. Uh, and Mobile's economy has never boomed, but it's it's never crashed either. It's just kind of a steady thing. I mean, they have different jobs there, but they are expanding and going crazy like we are here in many of the other cities. But we're doing well with our mini stories, so I don't really care about much else. So, Well, Doug and I want to go buy a couple of them from you, okay? Okay. Well, I'll be glad to talk to you about in my class, one of the first things I talk about is know your client and who is likely to rent your property so you aren't disappointed. And, you know, I get the client that has the one bedroom condo and he's upset that they have such turnover. Well, if you buy a one bedroom condo, you're going to have a lot of turnover. You're an apartment. 
And if you buy a three bedroom house, then you're going to have a family. And then you get the client that's upset because they have dogs. And I'm like, well, if you have a house in Denver, you're better back to dog. So anyway, so it's, it's know your client and there's different ways to look uh, to analyze the income, uh, how it comes in checks versus credit cards versus cash. And you can uh, get to know what kind of client you're going to have at that mini storage. Hmm. Very good. And so and for some of these, to know some expense ratios of what's realistic, you know, on there. And then if you have professional management or not, so yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so for these partnerships, is there a minimum amount down? You know, let's say I have five bucks, Doug is 10. Can we come to you or how, how uh, much do we need? Uh, sorry, I can't hear you quite now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the minimum is about 20,000. 20. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we have people that have invested 20,000 and that was all they wanted to do. And I have people that have invested a million dollars with us. My, one of my best clients was a financial planner. He managed $240 million for other people and he wanted to put his IRA with us. <laughs> wow. So that was quite a compliment. So, and then also one of his salesmen had known me for 20 years. So I think that helped, but. Wow. And what is the typical return? Uh, Let's say we brought 200K. The returns are different based on which, you know, what the, what's the goal of the partnership. We have the self-storage facilities and all the mobile home parks were all growth oriented. You know, obviously I was younger then. My clients were younger. We wanted to grow our money. We didn't need the cash flow. So we wanted to grow the money. So we buy these properties that are uh, at a break even or even a negative cash flow, but hopefully it's a good price. And then in some of the places we've doubled the income. Well, if you double the income, you pretty much double the value. And right. and if you only put 20% down to start with, uh, it's a pretty good check at the closing. Use as down payment for other properties. So, and other things are, uh, try, we're trying to do just uh, immediate income you know, we go through some ups and downs with that. So, you know, the overall returns uh, can be anywhere from eight to 15%. You know, I mean, I've had partnerships. We we had one that was 25%, but, you know, everybody's got that story about the one that did 25 and stuff. So, but right now we're kind of in a transition from doing a lot of the uh, hard money lending over to owning uh, assisted living properties. Our biggest problem is we've got cash in the bank uh, that's not invested. So, you know, it's not the worst case, but um, it's not good. So we're only in the five to eight percent range. Some of our partnerships are still doing ten on the cash flow side. Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. Here at Stall Realty, you are number one. I'm a realtor with HomeSmart, and my job is to make sure you are satisfied. Here is what one satisfied client of Stall Realty had to say. Rick Stahl was an awesome asset in helping our family find a home that checks all our boxes. He is patient and committed. I would recommend calling upon his services. One of my favorite mottos is making milestones memorable. Buying or selling a house can be overwhelming, but with my guidance and expertise, I can make this process as smooth as possible. I can be reached via email at stahlrealty at gmail.com or text call me at 720-429-3303. I look forward to hearing from you. And now back to our show. Can you talk about the assisted living or the sure. that kind of property? Yeah. So let's let's give the broad category of group homes. A group home can be a home for alcohol and drug rehab. So there's different operators that specialize in that. I didn't know this until I got involved with the assisted living, which our first one was about 15 years ago. They're allowed under fair housing to be anywhere in the country and local laws and zoning and HOA uh, cannot stop you. Uh, And the, the federal law says up to 15 people. There are some cities that are somehow able to limit it to eight to 12 or something. I have an attorney that specializes in this and represents us if uh, we run into problems with HOA or, or the city or something. But the categories are the homes for alcohol and rehab, and those can obviously be for men and women, and then they fall into two categories, uh, outpatient and inpatient. Uh, we have three outpatient homes and one inpatient home that we, we own and we rent to the operator. Then the other category that people think of is is the assisted living home for seniors that need some kind of 
care, the typical assisted living home. And what I think that's neat about this is these offer an alternative to those high-rise places that are just, you know, a hundred people wandering around and, you know, the nurses don't know the people and there's always a lot of turnover in the nursing business. So they never get to know the people where in our homes, there are eight to uh, 16 uh, residents in them. There's usually just two or three, uh, sometimes four nurses that rotate through there. And so they get to know the people and they know the medications of which ones are really supposed to have and um, they get to know the families and stuff. So it is more like a home versus just an apartment house. Or I have a friend that was in one. He said, this is a warehouse. And they're just hold, holding old people here is all they're doing. And they're dispersed throughout the community. You know, there could be one in your subdivision. You know, there's hundreds of these all over and you wouldn't even know it. Some of them do have a ramp to the front door. But other than that, there's nothing different about the outside of the house. Uh, sometimes there'll be more Walmart deliveries or something like that for the food, but uh, sometimes the uh, owners will go themselves to pick out the food, and so you wouldn't even know it. Um, so then you have the assisted living, and then you have memory care places. Those can be the same kind of home, and in those, when we start moving into assisted living for seniors or Alzheimer's care and things like that, then the home has to meet certain qualifications. It usually has to be sprinkled and you have to have a certain number of roll-in showers that people can roll in with a wheelchair. Even though everybody is ambulatory, uh, you still have to have some available. In Denver, they require access to bathrooms without going through public areas. But most of our properties have a half bath in the room, and some of them share a three-quarter bath with one other purpose, just like a Jack and Jill kind of situation. You can also have, you know, hospice care homes uh, for hospice care. So there's all kinds of level skilled nursing. You could even have a skilled nursing facility. That's a little bit harder because you're going to have a lot more equipment. It's really an interesting part of the real estate business that I think is pretty much ignored. People just don't realize that it's out there. So seems a lot more complicated than just buying a house and renting it, right? There's a lot more moving pieces. Well, it is, but you know, remember we rent them to an operator and they take care of all the legal rules and things like that. Oh. You know, I, I don't know how to run a family dollar store, but I'm part owner of a family dollar in Philadelphia. I'm part owner of a dollar store in Tampa. I'm also part owner of a Napa store in uh, Minneapolis, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert at running those stores. They don't want me there. I'm sure. <laughs> So you so, just turn it over to a, a manager. Well, you can you can do that. You can buy these properties and then hire a management company. And there are companies that manage them. And just like a professional manager would on your house. That's kind of an extra layer of management. And we don't, I mean, we just don't do that. It's not a bad idea, but I, we just don't do that. What we have is just hire an operator or we, we rent the building to an operator and he uh, or she runs the property and hopefully they make a lot of money over what they pay the rent. And I want them to be profitable. So someday they can buy the property. And, you know, we've done what, 33 of them and three of them have been purchased by the operators and their loan is less than what our, the rent is. And so they're making even more money. And so they're providing a good place for people to live and and now they've got a future rather than at a twenty dollar an hour wage, they have no future. You know. Wow. Doug, again, I, I feel like I'm hogging the interview. <laughs> oh, not at all, Rick. That's fine. It's actually I'd had a couple of questions earlier, but you beat me to the punch on them, so that's no problem. I'm curious though, as we've been sitting here kind of talking about this, is there a uh, even for like these assisted living types of properties, the the group homes, maybe as it would be a better description, is there a particular area or type of home that you look for with that? Is it something, you said there are some rules about not having to go through public places to get to a restroom? Are there right. some things yeah. that you look for in that respect? Right. In the beginning, we happened to come across a guy that was a contract. We were doing flips with him and he approached us and said, my wife is uh, familiar with running an assisted living property and I found a house that would be good. I want you to buy it. I'll remodel it. And we had to fund it. And then we'll lease it from you. And I thought, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I want to cut it into 10 bedrooms. It was a 6,500 square foot ranch. 
Now, I know that's probably a lot smaller than your homes, but, uh, you know, some people do get by with a 6,500-square-foot home. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? You know, that's the fun part about real estate. I mean, that's why I couldn't leave and go to work at a bank or something. It's all these other little side stories that come up and the interesting people you meet. But this home is in uh, the Green Gables Country Club, if you know where that is, on Jewel between Sheridan and Wadsworth. And it was a house that was built by the original developer. And he built that as kind of a party house. So it's a two-bedroom house and has two bedrooms and a kitchen at one end and then a gigantic living room. Well, and it's a rectangle and it has a flat roof. So there weren't, weren't any bearing walls other than the outside. We basically put five bedrooms on one side and five on the other and put in some half baths. And we had a 10-bedroom assisted living place. Wow. Uh, and then we've we've done three other houses, taking a house and making it into an assisted living property. The second one we bought had a six-car garage. It was a ranch with no basement, but had a six-car tandem garage. And I'm kind of a car guy, and I came home to my wife. I said, you know, I found this lovely home in southwest uh, uh, Lakewood, and it has a six-car garage. And that's what she said, Rick. <laughs> she said, no, I don't think so. Because I know what you're going to do. You're going to fill it up with cars. And I'm like, right. oh, I don't know. Maybe not. You know, I just have nice, have a little room in there. Anyway, so, but being the fiduciary that I am, I had the partnership buy it. And we spent uh, about 450000 I think, to buy it. And then we uh, spent about six or 700000 remodeling it. And we ended up with 12 bedrooms. And they all have a half bath and two big meeting area living rooms. It basically ends up with two living rooms out of the thing. So it's a really nice house. And then we bought a duplex up in uh, Arvada. And it had been converted to a school for the, an elementary school. So the garages that were in the middle of the duplex, like most duplexes are, had been already converted to classrooms. So we bought that for like 250000 because the school didn't need it anymore. And we spent, I think, 800000 and we ended up with a 14-bed facility. And then we bought a house over in uh, Federal Heights and spent eight or 900000 on that and ended up with a 900000 you're talking. In the remodeling. Yeah, just the remodeling. You're paying three times more for the remodeling than what you purchased these for. Yeah. You know, the properties are easily worth 100000 a bedroom. So if we've got a 12-bedroom place, they're easily worth a million two. If they've got half baths, they're probably worth a million four. So there's probably a you know $300,000 profit in those properties. But we spent a million two on it, so we rent it for $120,000 a year, and the tenant pays the taxes and insurance. So we have no expenses other than our mortgage out of that $120,000. So you know, that's our 10% cap rate. And when you look at houses today, it's lucky if you can get a 5% cap rate. So we're getting twice the income per dollar spent, you know, that what you can do on a house. And we have no toilet issues. You know, my CPA has a, has a phrase because he had lots of rental properties. He, he, he came up with the THF. You know what THF stands for? I have no idea. Toilet hassle factor. And he said, the fewer toilets in my life that I own, the, the better my quality of my life. <laughs> so you might want to keep that one. Very good. And during COVID, did all those nursing homes or group homes get affected? Not too much because the big ones did because it's really a, sta a sad state of affairs. Even though, you know, they, they charge five, six thousand of those big ones will charge eight thousand dollars. It takes a lot to take care of somebody and then those buildings are pretty nice so they're paying a lot in, in their mortgage payment there's a profit but it's not like you know you're going to make a hundred percent of your money or something so they don't pay the help very much and they keep them under 20 hours to keep them from qualifying for full-time employment some of these nurses will work three shifts three 20-hour shifts a week to get by which is just really bad that you know they can't work 40 hours and earn a living Right. But they're at thirteen, fourteen dollars an hour. Wow. And so they're going from one two hundred bed place to another hundred bed place to another hundred bed place. Think about the exposure that they all had in the beginning and they were spreading it around there. Where in our properties, uh, I mean some of them are well, one of them's run by uh, a mom and a daughter. 
And so they have no outside people coming in. We have about 250 beds or something. I think we had four or five COVID deaths in all of those. But it did interfere with adding people because um, you couldn't let anybody in unless they were going to move in. Well, people want to come in and walk around and meet people. All right. And and so they had to do it on, uh, you know, just virtually with a camera and walk around and show them what the place looked like and interview people and then move them in. So, and then a lot of people didn't want to move in because they were afraid of COVID. And so it, it did affect them, but we only had one operator that got into real financial problems. But along with COVID, she ended up getting diagnosed with cancer and had to have some operations. So. You know, you couldn't have a worse timing for that poor lady. So wow. anyway, but she's coming out of it now and she's going back up. So, wow. so it sounds like the overall, the group homes weren't affected a whole lot through COVID. Right. Ours weren't because they're small because and, they're and right. we don't have a lot of different turnover on the rents that are on the nurses. The, the people will, you know, have one nurse there all week, you know, rather than three different ones. So. What are you going to plan to do next? You've done everything. <laughs> well, not really. I like our business model now. And if you would have asked me 15 years ago, what's next? I'm not sure what I would have said, but I certainly wouldn't have said assisted living because I didn't know that opportunity existed. So, you know, that's one of the advantages of teaching these classes. I've had over 4,000 people through my classes. And oftentimes people come in and they'll say something. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. You know, networking in, in, a, in a different sense. But our plans for our partnerships are continue to grow them slowly, add more assisted living properties. We purchased uh, an industrial land up in Commerce City uh, three and a half years ago for a million four fifty. Cleaned it up a little bit, sold it. Well, we sold it in uh, January for two million nine fifty. So. We made a nice profit, so we're going to use that money to buy the $8 million property uh, next month. But we'll continue to look for opportunities. My agents bring different deals in, but we'll probably concentrate on the assisted living properties. We are going to go out of state a little more to have a wider choice of uh, operators and properties. You know, probably Texas, Arizona, those areas. Uh, We're looking at one over at Salt Lake right now. And, you know, that's a different kind of a home. That home is for uh, disabled children. And almost all those kids are on some kind of a Medicaid, you know, situation. The parents can't take care of them. I think it'll be good to have a different type of property other than just seniors and then the uh, alcohol and rehab places, the sober living places. So anyway, that sounded interesting. So we're negotiating on that deal right now. So it's very interesting, Doug. The last few guests we've had, all of them get to this, it feels like this stage of success and then they try to give back to the community through teaching, through helping other people succeed, through investing. Thanks for giving back. Oh, no problem. Yeah, and it's fun, you know. I really enjoy, I always did enjoy teaching. If I wouldn't have been in the real estate business, I probably would have been a teacher. For a while, we were doing um, some deals in uh, southwest uh, Wyoming. It was getting to be a real bother dra- driving up there, so I got my pilot's license. Because that's an ideal, you know, it's like two hours up there in a plane. And so never to be satisfied was just that. I got my private license, then I got my instrument rating, and then I got my multi-engine instrument rating. Then I had to buy my own airplane. And uh, so anyway, but then things changed and, you know, we weren't going there anymore. We found more deals locally or else they were in Alabama, and that's too far to fly a small plane. I don't I don't like them that well. So uh, anyways, got rid of the plane. But, you know, that was kind of my control freak in me. But I thought the ultimate job would be to teach flying. Because I enjoyed the flying so much. It's so technically oriented. And then it's fun to realize that things are up and down, you know, rather than left and right and forward and back. It was fun uh, adding the third dimension to thinking about landing and taking off and clearing the mountains. But I do enjoy the teaching. And so when the opportunity came up, I thought, well, this is great. I always remember the first class that Aurora set up for me they told me there'd be 25 people there. So I walk into the room and here's 25 people. And I've never taught this before. I didn't have time to really go through the book yet. And of course, back then we didn't have the projector. So I had a bunch of, uh, you know, the slides on the overhead projector thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I walked back out to my partner and go, there's 25 people in there. What are we going to do? And he goes, get in there and start. (laughs) 
So anyway, I started in and uh, went from there. But I, I do enjoy walking into a room for all of, you know, these people are strangers. They don't really know me. And so I need to establish a little credibility, then answer the questions and uh, show them, uh, hopefully give them some ideas to uh, help them become more financially independent. It seems to work pretty well. And I get a lot of people, you know, positive feedback, you know, 10 years later, you know, how I changed their life and stuff. So, you know, but, you know, really all I have is an idea that everybody, you, you have a lot of books behind you and any one of those books has that in them. I don't, I just tell them what's in the book and, you know, maybe that motivates them to finally do something. Yep. So speaking of books, what, what do you, what do you read? Well, you know, I don't do much reading. Um, you know, you mentioned you wanted to know what my favorite real estate book was, and it was actually uh, commercial real estate analysis and investment. It's an 890 page book. And while it's old by anybody's standard, you know, math is still one plus one equals two. The principles are the same. You know, how do you find a good location? Well, you know, things like, you know, are people moving there? In doing the class, one of the things I got to kind of verbalize on that I sort of knew in the back of my mind, but I didn't get to really point it out was one of the things is the affordability ratio and how important that is. And, and not only when you buy the property, but then just like with your stocks, you should do that or your realtor should help you do the affordability ratio to see how that's changing in the town and also down to your zip code. And with the different resources that an investment realtor has available to them, is I'm, you know, a CCIM candidate and we also pay for some other uh, database programs, CoStar and some other things. You can find out that information fairly easily and then track it. So if the affordability is getting to be less, maybe, you know, you ought to sell or something. I don't know. And then also, um, you know, check the ratio of owner-occupied versus non-owner-occupied in that subdivision to start with. And then also check it on a yearly basis. Is it getting to be more rentals? Is that bad? Or does that mean it's a good area for rentals? What kind of things should you do? And those things are covered in that book. And, you know, they were covered 20 years ago and it's still today. I haven't found any recent, uh, I mean, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and stuff. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it was mostly silly stuff, but it got a lot of people motivated, which is good. I haven't read a or found a good real estate book that I thought was that astounding over classes I took at DU. So sounds like you need to write one. Maybe that's the <laughs> next step. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about that. So, well, how about a business book? Do you have any business books you like? No, not really. Sorry. Too busy uh, finding deals and putting them together. So, you Very know. good. Yeah. Do you have other sources, Jim, that you turn to? Things like podcasts or books on tape or anything like that that you people on the radio or whatever you like to listen to in the background while you're doing the things you do? No. I'm usually pretty busy and i got to concentrate on what I'm doing, so I don't. I usually don't do that. So, or, uh, you know, being the broker of the office with 12 agents, sometimes I've got them lined up at my door three deep waiting to ask me a question. And, you know, all of them start off with, I have a quick question. (laughs) And then 10 minutes later, when I finally get the whole story out of them, then I can tell them the answer, but they all start out with, you know, well, a friend of mine. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I know. I know that routine. So I use that with my attorneys and my CPA. So don't tell me that. <laughs> so when you're not in the office and and running deals and things like that, what do you do in your spare time? What kinds of things do you enjoy? Well, you know, I have three wonderful grandkids, and they're all here in town, sort of the uh, Lafayette and and uh, uh, Westminster. So and we get, try to get up to see them. Uh, they're four, three, and two. I just had the two-year-old birthday party, so that's that's a great thing. I have two great son-in-laws. Um, I love hanging around with them, and then my two daughters. Probably the other thing I like to do for fun is uh, I'm a bit of a car nut. And for the last probably 10 or 15 years, I've been, I go to racetracks. They're out at like Byers and High Plains and Pikes Peak and then the one down at Pueblo. And different car clubs rent those. And I'm in two different car clubs, BMW and then the NASA one. Then we get our turn out there and we get to chase each other around as fast as we want to go and see if we can scare ourselves. So. <laughs> So like, what's um, your favorite, what's your car that you race? Um, I have a BMW M2C is the one I'm, I'm using now, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I only have three BMWs, which is only, <laughs> I have one for go, one for show and one for snow. 
So <laughs> I have an all-wheel drive uh, GT for my wife, and then I have an i8 for the show. That's the hybrid car, and then I have a and then the M2C for the track. <laughs> so I found out that doing that, uh, tires and brakes are, are considered expendables. <laughs> So I learned how to change my own brakes. Then I got my track tires versus my street tires. So, so it's kind of fun. No, that sounds fun. Are you a classic car guy too? Do you own any classic you know, cars? If it's got wheels and it makes a noise or something and it rolls, I'm all in favor of it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Antique cars, new cars. I, you know, I, I like BMWs for the track and there's a lot of BMWs and Porsches that usually show up at the track and then a few Corvettes and other cars and uh, Subarus. And uh, it's fun to chase each other around. There's the, the under 30-year-old crowd and then the over 55-year-old crowd. So the under 30 are unmarried, and the over 55 have the kids out of the house. <laughs> Single so, people versus the empty nesters. Yeah, it's the gray hair people and the, and the young guys. And the old guys have a little more money sometimes, so we can buy a better car and sometimes better tires, <laughs> which irritates the uh, younger guys. <laughs> no. I've been at it so long. I've met a lot of the younger guys, and then they go, "Well, I think this is my last year, so uh, we're going to have a kid next year, so I don't think I'll be back." <laughs> oh my! So, but I, you know, I did the same thing. I didn't, have, I didn't go to the track, but um, you know how it is when you have kids; they don't have any time or money. So, but yeah, um, your priorities change. Yeah. So, Jim, where can the listeners find out more about you? Where can they get in contact with you? Sure. Well, our website is abetterwayrealty.com, and uh, that has our contact information on it. Um, or, you know, you can give us a call. And, you know, my email is jim at abetterwayrealty.com. So I'd love to hear from anybody. If you've got questions or comments, uh, we're always uh, glad to answer questions or something if we can and steer you in the right direction. Very good. And that. Are you teaching the classes again or how, yeah. if we wanted to take a class with you? Yeah. Well, on our website, we have all the classes listed of where we're going to be. And then you would call that location and sign up. And then if they have enough people, they'll, uh, you know, I'll be there and they'll let me know. And the first class is about three and a half hours. The property management class is about oh, a little less than three hours. And the commercial class is about three, three hours and 15 minutes. So perfect. So we go through an 80-page book in three hours, so nobody gets bored. Wow. That sounds interesting. I might sign up for the commercial one. Yeah, that'd be good. Great. Great. Love to see you. One last real important question here. This is the secret sauce for success. Do you have a few nuggets, a few secrets that you think are are important that helped you get to where you are today? What kind of secrets to success? I don't think they're much of a secret. It's do your planning before you buy the property. When we're working with somebody, we want them to pretend like they're a landlord before they buy a house. Find a house that you think is would be a good rental. And then we want them to put together a rental survey. We show them how to do that in the class. So do a rental survey. And then I check that to see that they're being realistic. Through the three different property managers I have, I can make sure that those rents are realistic. And then we give them an income and expense sheet. And I want to fill that out based on, you know, what they think the taxes and insurance repairs and so forth are and the loan. Then I want them to do a couple of what ifs. What if we had no increase in rent? What if I had no increase in value? So it's an easy sheet. It's a little five-year projection sheet. Very simple. It's the one we start them with. And then as they move on to other properties, we have the 15-year sheet that has four refinance possibilities in there. So they can think about, you know, taking cash out, doing other investing. But to start with, it's a five-year income and expense sheet, simple Excel sheet. Important thing, though, is that you use the internal rate of return from Excel to determine the rate of return. And don't use some weirdo cash-on-cash thing or so I don't know what these things are. I've seen these sheets that are just ridiculous. You know, prepare before you buy. And so you have a realistic expectation of what you think the cash flow is going to be or not be. And understand the tax laws, because I get a lot of people that didn't understand the tax laws and they thought they could write off the loss and they can't because they make over 150000 because of the passive loss rules. But, you know, remember that if you can't deduct the, the loss this year, you can deduct it when you sell it. So then we get into the next spreadsheet. 
That spreadsheet doesn't add in the tax loss in the year it occurs. It postpones it until you sell it. And so you can see how much the, the savings is going to be on your taxes when you sell it by postponing that loss. And maybe that tax savings at that time is going to cover the cost of your capital gain. So it shows the example of when it might be worthwhile to sell and pay the taxes versus do a trade. You, you need to have the complete plan to start with. So you don't get halfway through it and then go, oh, well, now what do I do? You know, because you didn't know where you were going. So we like, you know, establish your entry uh, program and also your exit program and make sure you've explored all the possibilities so you know all those possibilities. So So if I had to summarize that up, it's plan the work and work the plan. Yeah. And then check the plan. Check. Very good. Yeah. Check the plan to see if it's still matching reality because sometimes our plans don't match reality. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. Uh, a few times. <laughs> Only once. It's lasted for 47 years. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just the one time. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate that answer because a lot of the answers that we get are, I don't want to call them cliche, they're they're good answers, but things like don't give up, stick with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you say to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's nothing. That's not concrete action. Right. That's the purpose of these classes is to give people concrete, specific things to do to decide if they want to do this or not. Well, we appreciate that viewpoint. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jim. Uh, you've been a great guest. Well, thank a you. ton of information. Well, you've been great host. Thank you. Wow, Doug. I say this every week. I am totally amazed at our guests. Right. Jim has done so many different things. Uh, I've known Jim for six years now, not close uh, with him. We're not close friends or anything, but I didn't know 99% of what he was talking about. I knew a little bit about his background, but so much that the man has done. It's incredible. I mean, can you list off all the things he did? How much time do we have? Are we going to try and limit the length of our podcast? (laughs) Managing broker, mortgage company, (laughs) pilot, (laughs) races cars, teaches at a community college, investor. Yeah, it's just very humbling to talk with somebody like him and find out the different things that he has done. When you think, hey, I've done a few things in my life, and you realize, well, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Holy cow. But what a great guy, too. And, you know, I can tell he's humble about everything and just kind of matter of fact. What was your secret sauce that he came up with there? Do your planning. Just really be aware of what you're getting into. There's a rental survey, an income and expense sheet. They do some what ifs, establish your income and your exit rental survey, where he was talking about knowing where the rents are going and things like that. I mean, there are so many pieces of information to which we can have access to know what the trends look like and things like that, help you determine what kind of an investment you want to buy. So I think that that was really fascinating. I really like that. And as a a numbers guide, since I do financial analysis work for people and, and advisory work for people, um, that's really, that really hit home with me. I, I appreciate the don't give up and keep your attitude up and all this kind of thing. That, that's great. But I, I want to know what to do. I want to know what actionable kinds of things I can be thinking about and working on. So I love that about him. Yeah. And concrete action, I believe, is what he wanted out of any meeting, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, plan the work. Work the plan and then check the plan. What? Uh, just a very straight shooting guy. Yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, knowledgeable, but, but not at all pretentious. I mean, you wouldn't stand next to the guy at the grocery store and think, Hey, this guy, you know, has a real estate empire. You would kind of just think he's just another guy, right? So yeah, I mean, just a, a, an interesting person. Buying very good deals, turning them and, and making good money for, you know, his investors, not only for him too, but he's really giving back by helping people succeed and, and then, you know, through the teaching, helping people learn. Yeah. I loved his, um, his story about his first property that he, was it the first one that he sold as a realtor? It was like $13,000. (laughs) which sounds like nothing. And probably when he did that, I mean, if the house was $13,000, $300 was probably not nothing, you know? Right, right. And I love the story as working with his dad and getting a taste of 
real estate and seeing how it works, the inner workings, and that just what is appetite. Yeah. I think one of the trends that I have seen uh, among the people that we've that we've interviewed here is when there are strong role models for some of these things early on in their life, people are more successful. They're more inclined to take those risks, more inclined to be accepting of the kinds of things that, that go along with risk, the income and the, and the success, of course, but also that realization of potential losses and that kind of thing. I mean, whether it's Jim talking about that or Chris talking about the things that happened, remember uh, the stories that he had about people telling him what to do and, and showing him as a young person and, and being willing to take those, uh, take that leap. Same thing with Nicole Ruth. She had that role model of a realtor to push her into things. I think it's really important to have that proper role model when you're younger, not just in terms of telling you what to do, but helping you do it. Yeah. Helping you see the end result. Yeah. When I was a younger man, I started business back in 1997 and there was a fellow there that I worked with who was kind of a he was kind of a slumlord type uh, and he was he owned a lot of properties I want to say 40 some properties something like that uh, I asked him one day point blank I said look I want to get involved in the real estate game I don't know what to do he said do your first property and then come talk to me then I'll mentor you okay well here I am you know many years later 1997 that's what uh, 24 years ago now and I have a flip under my belt, but I don't own a property yet. And I think, you know, that kind of thing, people need to be willing, like, okay, well, you know, are you willing to do the work? He might just get hit up by a lot of people saying, you know, help me, help me. And he wants to see a little somebody with some skin in the game, maybe. That may be the case, but unfortunately for me, it was not, uh, you know, it was something that I, I could have really used his help. But anyway, I think that uh, that's beside the point. That's more of a, uh, just kind of to show what, what people have done and what they've been exposed to. And I think what has been a, a pretty significant step toward their success. Wow. Anyhow, I'm just totally amazed. I think I'm going to go sign up to climb Mount Everest or something just to kind of get my uh, mojo going here. <laughs> to keep up the gym. Right. <laughs> Got to come up with something that you right? Jeez. Oh uh, my goodness. No, Doug, no, do you want to take good. us out of here? It's been a long interview with Jim, but great one. So I think we better wrap it up. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening in tonight. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Jim as much as we did and learned as much as we did. People like Jim show us not only that, that there are people out there making things happen, but, boy, there's just no real limit to what you can do. I mean, go race cars and fly airplanes and buy houses and, have families, all these other things that, that people do. There's, it's possible. All you have to do is put your mind to it. So go to bed tonight with that on your mind and dream big dreams. And hopefully we'll see you in the next podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we find the secret ingredients for success. We all want to be successful in life. So let's break down the steps it takes to get there and learn from other people's journeys. We hope that through the stories you hear on our show, you will find success in your life.